Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld is running for the Republican nomination. But will President Trump's hold on the party block his chances? Also, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey has declared it the era of the Green New Deal. So how will climate change play into the fates of the 2020 candidates? And a look ahead at the 2019 Boston City Council elections. It's a full hour of political insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. Here with me in the studio, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello again, Aaron. It's so good to be here. Glad to have you. And Rob DeLeo, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at Bentley University. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. And back again with us from the studios of New England Public Radio, Gerald Duquette, Associate Professor of Political Science at Central Connecticut State University. Missed you around here, Gerald. Very <laughs> good. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to start off with a question that's uh, not on our list but uh, and is all on the radar. But I think it's important for you all to just uh, respond to it very briefly, and that is uh, the Mueller report is everywhere. I don't want to talk about the results of it, what's in it, what's not in it. Here's what I uh, take it that I'd like from you all who are using your skills as political scientists to look back. So I know you don't like to do this instant response because you don't know what's going <laughs> to happen. But I wonder if from what you're seeing, how it's playing out now, if you think it's going to be an issue in the 2020 election, maybe some piece of it, maybe none of it at all. Uh, there are a lot of folks who've said that uh, even in the heat of the moment, many regular Americans are like, who, what? Nah, I'm not really paying attention. And so, no, it wasn't on their radar as they talk to candidates or think about reelecting President Trump, wherever they are on the ideological spectrum. But, Gerald, I wonder if you think months from now it actually will come back around and this will be something that uh, voters want to hear about. Well, whether they want to hear about it or not, they're going to hear about the contents of it or the, the – in other words, the, the, the phrase, the Mueller report may not resonate, but obviously lots of the information in it will be used by Democratic candidates consistently and – uh, persistently. Okay, so that's a yes uh, from Gerald. How about you, Rob? Oh yeah, I th I, th I think certainly if the RNC's sort of uh, response to the release of the report is any indication of 2020, I think they uh, the Republicans are going to claim victory with respect to that report and and use it to sort of highlight what they perceive as ineffectiveness by Democrats in governing uh, during this last term in office. Okay, Aaron. I agree with what uh, Rob just said. I think this is a real failure of civic education. In the report, we see, you know, abuse of power, um, real issues with separation of powers, checks and balances, all those things most of us should have gotten in at least at UMass, Poli Sci 102, <laughs> are, are uh. your intro and in high school sort of civics classes. I think the RNC will capitalize on this report precisely because Americans don't have the same sort of respect for those, you know, baseline mm. structural things of American government. And so 
those who are with Trump remain on his side, despite the fact that the Mueller report really suggests that the Trump administration is going at core fundamental principles of American governance. That, you know, in the Nixon era, people fought, but it took a little while, Mm -hmm. but in the Nixon era, people uh, collectively said, hey, this guy's too far against our government. We're not seeing that this go around. Mm -hmm. Okay. Could could be a, you know, a four-year-long seminar on the unitary executive theory. Oh, Mm. great. (laughs) That sounds... Theory being key. (laughs) Yeah. Freakish theory. (laughs) Okay. Well, I wanted to ask that because a bit of our conversation today is going to be about the 2020 election and certainly the Democratic candidates. But I wanted to start on the Republican side because uh, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Well announced that he's going to run for president. Let's take a listen. I'm announcing that I'm running for president of the United States as a Republican against President Trump uh, in 2020. So you're hoping to take him on in the primaries? In the primaries. I I really think if we have six more years of the same stuff we've had out of the White House the last two years, that would be a a political tragedy, and I would fear for the Republicans. Well, here's the thing about the Republican Party, as we know it now. Many analysts have, uh, I think, correctly assessed that it is really President Trump's party. And that's not making a uh, a statement. That's based on the fact that uh, President Trump has directed people who are working for his campaign, and they have done an excellent job of running around the country, really locking down all the state organizations. And uh, if people paid attention, the state organizations are the ones that, you know, really provide the support for candidates. And so if you have all of the state organizations on your side— And then that means you're controlling what happens on the floor of the convention, which is also what they've done. They've changed some rules. I don't see how anyone is a challenger within the system of the Republican Party as we have known it to be. So, Gerald, I'll let you take the first bite at the apple. Well, Bill Weld is for all of us uh, people in Massachusetts. We know Bill Weld, and I don't think that he's necessarily the the most serious challenger to uh, to the president. This is a guy who ran for president as a uh, as a libertarian and then endorsed the Democratic candidate while he was still on the. T- I mean, so there's a lot about him that he has some idiosyncrasies that are not quite uh, conventional, which explains his willingness to get in the race. And there may be others outside of the Republican, uh, you know, orbit that will do the same. I, I suspect there'll be at least one more person on the outside coming in to make uh, to make a run at this. The important thing about it is that uh, if no one is actually challenging uh, President Trump in the primaries, then there, there undoubtedly, in my mind, there will be a, a movement by Republicans to do, do some sort of crossover hijinks in Democratic primaries. There is the the issue with Bill Weld that Gerald has raised, which is correct, which is that a lot of people are annoyed with him about his run on the libertarian side. But aside from all that, it could be, let's say, I'm picking somebody out of the air now, Kasich. You know, that's a guy that stirred a lot of uh, excitement, even as we got closer and closer to the nomination of President Trump. Uh, That's a guy that a lot of Republicans are nervous about thinking about uh, challenging uh, President Trump. But the bottom line is, the way the system is set up now, how could John Kasich's Aaron make mm-hmm. any run at all. He doesn't have any support anyway. He couldn't have any the way it's set yeah, up now. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. but although the Trump team won without having any of the that state delegations right. last time, right? Yeah. Um, now it was a much bigger field to your larger point. So uh, is it an uphill battle for 
any Republican running against Trump. Yes, it, it's so steep. Heartbreak, whatever. You know, I, yeah, I, yes. I don't run the marathon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's dramatic and it's real. Um, that's not to say it hasn't happened. I think what Weld and what Kasich and some others would capitalize on is there is that cadre of never Trumpers who have been loyal soldiers in those state party, but really would prefer someone else. I think what uh, Weld or Kasich or any of them are counting on is to weaken Trump because they truly want Trump to lose. Kasich because he wants to run uh, in 2024. Mm -hmm. Weld because he has true ideological problems with him. So with Weld, I think if he's doing real talk, he wants to get on that stage, the debate stage. He wants to embarrass Donald Trump, make him a a bit of a joke because we know here Weld's folksying can be pretty funny and those kind of things. So he wants to soften. And he's smart. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's that. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to, uh, he wants to soften him up for the Democrat that's coming along and make Trump spend some money. But you're right. It's right, a total right. uphill battle because of the way the state parties have fallen in line, though um, many did so reluctantly. So they're willing to switch teams. Because that was going to be my question to you, Rob. So now that they've done the policy switching that they have done, so the uh, Trump campaign is monitoring local party operations, just so people understand. They've used endorsements, lobbying, rule changes to get people and the state on their side. They plan to organize at county and state caucuses and conventions to elevate all pro-Trump leaders. In fact, we saw that here in Massachusetts with Representative Jim Lyons, who's very much a Trump supporter, lost his own race and then ran against uh, Charlie Baker's person for the Republican uh, chairpersonship and won uh, and said right away, we're going to make Massachusetts, you know, Trump country. So the changes in the policies... Are we looking at a permanent change, I guess, in the Republican Party? You know, in my mind, those minutiae details about the policy changes at at the state level are are really less significant than Trump's control of the Republican narrative at the moment. And I don't want to belabor the point, but if you look at the way in which the party really rallied around him in the wake of that report's release. If you look at the statements coming out of the RNC, I think it's safe to say that his power within the party has never been greater than it has at this moment in time. I don't think there's any indication that there's going to be this mass exodus away from him. Now, of course, a lot could change uh, in the next year and more could come out from the report. There could be some fallout. But I think he has a pretty strong hold on the party apparatus at the moment. And these policy changes only sort of accentuate uh, his strength at the moment. Policy changes like this are routine. Parties yeah. protect oh. their incumbent president. Sure. But can they change back? I mean, let's, I mean, now Absolutely. That you, okay. Yes. All right. This they can, yeah. but, you know, yeah. we think of party, the you know, party in the electorate, mm-hmm. party in service and organization. Like, uh, what you're highlighting is the really boring part of political right. parties, yeah. right. but they're the ones who get the work done. Uh, right. So that he's captured party in service, party in organization, um, makes that switch back a little bit more difficult. I agree with what my colleague said about that party and the electorate mm-hmm. uh, amongst Republicans. Ha- uh, we've seen a shift towards Trump, but that uh, you've got the structural and organizational backing is something different. And it's something he won. He won in 2016 without having that. It yeah. really strengthens his position to have incumbency, the party in service and the state behind you and the electorate. It's an uphill battle for Democrats to beat him. 
That's right. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. And we're dedicating the full hour to local and national politics. All right, so let's go over to the uh, Democratic side, where there's an embarrassment of riches in terms of numbers of people running, but the women who are in the race... Uh, seem not to be getting quite their due, Aaron. Now, not surprising, Kel surprises, I'd like to say, but <laughs> from a political scientist <laughs> standpoint, how do you see it? <laughs> Well, I, I'm fascinated in many ways. I, I'm teaching women politics and policy this semester, and it, it's an area I do a lot of work in. Uh, last week in class, we had this great discussion um, that speaks to a larger truth that and we've never had so many viable female candidates from disparate backgrounds, really interesting backgrounds. And so it's one of these rare times in political science where we have no research on what's going on because it's never happened before, right? <laughs> a, you might have known we, don't, we haven't had a female president. But B, we've never had five, at least four of which are top tier candidates. And so I've been really fascinated to watch, A, the fact that they're not getting the attention that they merit. Their resumes are thicker. So that truism of political science we've seen, like the mayor of South Bend, love him or hate him or indifferent, the resume isn't as thick in terms of actual governance. Mm -hmm. Beto O'Rourke, you know, like he lost in Texas. Don't get me wrong. Like it was an impressive Mm -hmm. race, but you still lost again. Against an incredibly unpopular senator, and the resume is not that thick with Beto O'Rourke. Whereas you compare that to Kamala Harris, Gillibrand, um, Warren, our very own Warren, Klobuchar, they have very thick resumes and they're not getting the attention. We've seen in public polling right now that it's, you know, depending on where Sanders, Biden and uh, Mayor Pete. And so even in this race where women have the uh, luxury of not being tokenized in running for the Democratic nomination, we're still seeing that the men are getting the attention. And just as importantly, the Democratic electorate is responding in that way. You know, resumes aren't really high on the newsworthiness list. You know, media outlets are making decisions about newsworthiness that are not the ones that we would make as political scientists. We have five candidates who are women who are extremely well qualified, possibly the five most qualified in the field. But they're, you know, you've got a guy in the young mayor and you've got Biden who's getting in trouble and you've got Beto. Who, these guys are just more, they're better copy. And that's that's what gets them Well, the no, attention. they're not better copy. They're assumed to be better copy. Right? Well, and I know that I mean. wasn't your point. But actually... To be honest with you, the average consumer of media is not a political scientist either. And, and right, so they're getting the resume of Sanders is not all over the news because of his resume. Let's put it that way. He has a long resume too, but that has nothing really to do with his appeal at this point. Well, I would add, Rob, before you weigh in, that on another show I'm on, on WGBH Beat the Press, we pointed out that there was a very interesting article written by a woman writer in Vogue saying, you know, women have interesting hobbies. They have other lives that the kind of articles that are written about men routinely are never written about these women candidates. So she, she yeah. in fact, went and said, okay, what's your hobby? What's, and yep. wrote up the piece That's that you would piece. normally see. I speak Norwegian. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I have a dog, too. And, and like, I'm likable. Yeah. So your point, Gerald, is, yeah, no, Bernie is not, people are not uh, tracking to him because of his resume, but they know more about him because the tendency is to keep asking Mayor Pete, 
you know, what he thinks about this, that, and the other, uh, and what his hobby is and where he goes because to church. Because they're unusual. Well, yeah, but They're so, a human interest story. So, and women are, too, by the way. Well, they're uh, unusual we may, in this we may think that, but, you know, the average the average person is, is more interested in something unusual. And you know what? Really smart, competent women are not unusual. Well, well in this in this situation, they are. So, in fact, when they when we first started, uh, saw that all these women were uh, getting into the race, you know, I wrote a piece saying, never again will there be a time where you may not want to vote for a woman, but it will not be weird to have more than mm-hmm. one woman in, which is a huge leap from where we right. have been, sadly. Rob. And, and <laughs> you know, I think we need to be cautious here. Uh, polling suggests it's it's really, it's Biden and Sanders and then everyone else. I, I know Mayor Pete moved into third, but but if you look at the gap in the numbers, they're, they're pretty big. What we're seeing with Biden and Sanders, too, is name recognition. These are two individuals that were, have been in this position before. Both have much greater name recognition than all of the other candidates. So let's see how things shake out, you know, when the, the primary season picks up and we start to have uh, some debates there. But, uh, you know, I think I think there's still time for some yeah. of these women I, candidates. I just close. don't have confidence at all in that. Like, I totally understand where you're coming from. You're right. Polling soft and name recognition. But, you know, correlation isn't causality, but I can't help but, you know, who's had more difficulty raising money? Harris has done pretty good. But the way in which Buttigieg, with no name recognition, right. has caught up so quickly and the ways in which the patterns we're seeing here are, are the same patterns we've seen in legislative offices and right. governors and stuff like that. So, But I, has Buttigieg really caught up? I mean, he's only at like. Eight percent, isn't he? In, oh, no, in I, and, and I mean, in terms of raising money. Oh, in terms of money, you know, right, like, right, right, right. Like I mean, the, in the terms money of, yeah. I, and let me add yeah. something. I mean, in terms of people understanding him, let me note that the last time we had a conversation, we could not pronounce his last yes, name. Yes, I thought of yes, and I now we all today. can. Uh-huh. That right, says right. something. Ooh, mm-hmm. I'm still not sure. I didn't just butcher it. No one play that back, please. We wouldn't even say it. We all said, you know, the guy from South Bend. Yeah, that's what we said. One of the issues. <laughs> One of the issues is what what tribe do we, does each candidate reflect? You've got Biden. He's going to be the sort of culturally conservative Democrats guy. Sanders has staked out the sort of progressive tribes guy. So these five women, where what tribe are they? You know, we know that women don't vote for women because they're women. That's what the data tells us. So what will be their tribe or their tribe niche tribe within the, you know, very multi-tribe coalition of the Democratic Party? At the end of the day, what we know is voters are use identity protective cognition. This is about their tribe, not about the resume, not about the issues even. It's ultimately sort of an expression of which one of these candidates is, is like me. I am not the political scientist, but let me just say, I'm, I believe they have screamed at the top of their lungs, here's my tribe. Uh-huh. Warren, I'm on the progressive side. Klobuchar, I am center-right or center-left. Uh, you know, what, mm-hmm. Name the rest of them. Harris, yeah. I'm kind of crossing, but I'm creating a new category. Mm-hmm. They've said nobody mm-hmm. wants to accept Gillibrand. it. Gillibrand, I'm going right at you, Trump. Yeah. You know, the <laughs> average voter is female. And especially in the Democratic Party. I mean, it, it's uh, women and especially women of color yeah. that if, if the Democrats are winning, you can thank a female. <laughs> yeah, uh, and so the fact that in this primary, these incredibly competent women aren't emerging to the top says something about women in politics and it says something about the Democratic Party. You know, I find it deeply problematic personally. And, you know, when you're teaching women in politics to, you know, the room, a third of the room is male and two thirds of the room is female. I can't tell a good news story. And just as importantly, I can't predict one. Yeah. 
Uh, let me just add to this as we close this part of the conversation out. There is a new forum, a new uh, political forum that is happening very soon from an organization called She the People, uh, founded by Amy Allison. And they have invited 2020 Democrats to come to speak to them. And the forum represents women of color. And Amy Allison says it's about time that women of color who are powerhouses in the Democratic establishment recognize their power and get these candidates Mm -hmm. to come and address directly issues of concern to them and communities they represent. So uh, that is happening uh, April 24th. And a lot of people have signed up, by the way. A lot of the candidates have already said they're coming. So just just to note that there'll probably be an opportunity for women, uh, some of the women in the race, to stand out in that forum particularly. Indeed. People don't know about it. Cool. Let's uh, switch gears over to your hobby horse, uh, Rob, which is to talk about some policy. And the big one that everybody's talking about that people laughed off and even were nasty about at the beginning was the Green New Deal. Mm. When Senator Ed Markey co-sponsored with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the... Green New Deal, people literally, you know, laughed uh, in their faces and said, are you people crazy? What what is happening here? So just so people understand what the basic tenets are, uh, they want to get to carbon neutral emissions and 100 percent renewable energy in 10 years. They want to guarantee green jobs and address environmental racism. That's Mm -hmm. what you need to know without going into wonky dim. Yeah. But it's getting a lot of attention now. It's getting a lot of (laughs) attention. And, and, you know, if we were to, to... keep talking polling, you know, for for quite some time now, polling is pretty consistently suggested that climate change really is something that, at least in theory, Democrats can run on. But they've struggled mightily to package it in a way that resonates with voters. Now, contrary to Republican framing of this issue as sort of a socialist power grab, (laughs) I think there's reason to believe that the Green New Deal, or at least parts of the Green New Deal, could play well in 2020. So if we just look at at Democratic primary voters, close to 70% of them have indicated that they support the Green New Deal in its entirety. So it's it's definitely going to matter during primary season. Now, when we look closer at different elements of the policy, so water security, environmental security, green jobs, these are items that are beginning to have some traction across the aisle as well. So I I, I think laughing off the Green New Deal uh, uh, may not be the best strategy uh, for Republicans and even certain centrist Democrats, because I, I think it's going to matter an awful lot in the next election. Uh, Gerald, uh, two things. In detailed kind of conversations with the media, uh, Ed Markey has said, you know, f- quit freaking out about the 10-year thing, which is what everybody was freaking out about, right. and, and think of these as visions and goals. And he compared right. it to sort of uh, uh, John F. Kennedy saying, we're going to get to the moon mm-hmm. and, you know, however many years he said. And so we, if we didn't get there at the exact date, we got there two years later, it was still the same thing. That was right. the urgency. And the other thing I would have you uh, speak to is that millennials overwhelmingly support the Green New Deal. So what's your response? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question that the Green New Deal is uh, a positive thing for people who understand that the you know, climate is changing in ways that are disastrous. So it's, <laughs> it, at, a, at the level of values, it's a clear winner. Right. Mm-hmm. It's when you get into the details, you're sort of going in a direction that might actually be kind of a hyper focus that is not a net plus in terms of the election. Is so, it though? But, it, but politically, is it? 
though? Well, in the general election, obviously, everybody who is, uh, you know, sort of truly interested in dealing with climate change is not going to be voting for Trump anyway. It's not, you know, it's not like that's going to be the issue per se. But the problem with the Green New Deal is that it's a great idea, especially because the idea was let's use this broadly worded thing to start a debate. But you have to understand the ability of the other side to squash that debate, which Mitch McConnell showed us very clearly, mm. is much greater than we might realize. Mitch McConnell was able to use parliamentary, you know, sort of trickery, if you will, to short circuit the Senate debate entirely. And that's the kind of short circuiting that can be done in other venues as well. Right. So the, the kind of debate that we need to have to, in order to frame the election in a way that's positive for the Green New Deal won't go uncontested. And the, the ability of Republicans to contest the frame is probably not uh, appreciated. So, Aaron, has the train left the station, though? Because what if you don't have the debate, as Gerald has said, within the confines of where it should have been, you know, mm-hmm. in the Senate, but out here in the public, everybody's talking about it. Exactly. I, yeah. I think that the Democrats are catching up to where their voters are, mm-hmm. um, that this is a framing contest. Like, that's what happens in politics. The Republicans right. understand it one way and the Democrats understand it uh, the other. Republicans have been willing to hammer, hammer, hammer. There's climate change isn't real. They're going to take your hamburger. <laughs> okay. Right. And they've doubled down and tripled down and made their voters really respond to that. Democratic voters have been, to Rob's earlier point about environmental justice and to Callie, your point, millennial voters, uh, it's a top three issue for them. So now Democrats have been really impressed with Markey and AOC, haven't like... When, when the first shots were fired, they didn't go, oh, we'll change it. We'll change it. It's not as radical as you seem. They, they said, no, we're going to stay on this. Green New Deal. We're going to keep selling this. We're not going to retreat because the Republicans are fighting with us. And so it, I think they've gotten better at the politics, not only having the Green New Deal, but not backing away from it. We saw uh, so many of those 2020 candidates signed on before they even knew really what they were signing on because they knew it was political gold as a symbol if you want to win the 2020 primary. So I think the Democratic Party is finally catching up to where those voters are and just as importantly where millennials are. Millennials really care about environmental justice, really care about environmental science, and they don't vote. Or they don't vote to the same percentage of other age groups. If you want to motivate them at 20, in 2020, put this Green New Deal out there because, you know, the Mueller report and this bickering, they're not as interested, but they care about that. So I think it's good politics if they keep hammering away and not backing off it for Dems. So from a policy standpoint, Rob, are we saying this is huge that something that used to be almost kryptonite to mention if you were a politician because you didn't want to really get into it. I don't want to be saying yes or no. Let me just sort of say the earth we should preserve and, you know, (laughs) let's all walk free. But nobody wanted to really, you know, take a stand. But now it's not kryptonite to take some kind of stand on it. Well, I think it's about reasserting climate change as a plank in the Democratic agenda. I mean, if we were to look at the 2016 national convention, really, it was an item that was buried. It was a tertiary issue at best. So as far as actually creating policy change, look, the Green New Deal isn't going to manifest itself as the sweeping policy proposal that's going to pass in this session. But I think what the Democrats are trying to do is they're trying to say this is a priority. You don't have to jump ship and look for a third party candidate in order to find this. We have people within our ranks who are going to advocate for these types of issues once they're elected to office. And I think it's setting the stage for quite possibly, you know, a presidential victory in 2020. So I think this is more 
at the moment about primary politics than it is about sure. policy change necessarily. Mm, okay. But the fact that they're talking about in climate change again is really important. It's important to remember that if general elections turned on policy, there wouldn't have been a Republican president in the last <laughs> 50 years. Well, that's because true. it's yeah. always been it's been true in you know most of the last 30 years that on issues, even the high profile issues, the American people by majority and sometimes very large majorities have much more progressive or liberal sensibilities. So it's a dangerous thing to bank on policy, no matter how grand the policy is, because at the end of the day, that's always been a, a Democratic advantage, and they've still lost. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Aaron O'Brien, Rob DeLeo, and Gerald Duquette. You just heard him. They're all contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog, and we're talking about local and national politics. Just a local note on that very national issue. Not only do we have Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, but also Governor Baker, who's uh, found himself yeah. as a Republican who's, you know, embraced, if not the Green New Deal, certainly uh, many aspects of climate change and been out front about uh-huh. it. No, I was going to say he found Jesus, but I was like, he found Mother <laughs> Earth or something like that. But and I have a lot, you know, the, the fact that he was sort of not a straight up denier, it, it was crazy. But like, I have a lot of respect for the fact that he changed his views. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have enough of that in politics. Like maybe he did it because it's politically efficacious. Maybe he did it because he read science. Maybe it's both. doesn't really matter. He He's doing policy uh, and he's better on environmental issues. And he changed his mind in politics. Policy learning, my God, isn't it wonderful? Indeed. Mm. Indeed. Right. And, you know, it's just to that point, an interesting barometer of whether or not this reframing of climate change as as a jobs issue to a degree, I think is is also the states. Is this language picking up in the states? And, you know, Governor Baker, the Mass House, have endorsed a, a proposal called Green Works right. a couple weeks ago, which, which funnels some money mm-hmm. into local green energy and climate resilience projects, which is something the governor has really uh, been out, out front on. And so it's, it's curious to see as the Green New Deal enters into our national political lexicon, how some of the elements of that framing of, of the bill uh, permeate down to the states as well. So given uh, what Gerald said uh, just a bit about um, policy doesn't drive really folks to the polls, I'm curious about your take on reparations as a policy being discussed. Um, Now, there's no deal. There's no specifics to it. It's just been more wholly embraced as a conversation. The way I'm reading it is really not most of the candidates, the Democratic candidates, of course, are using it as a tool to talk about racial inequality, but not really specifically about what reparations may or may not mean in practical terms. Aaron, I think it's good policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is a potentially a poison pill for mm-hmm. Democrats. I mean, we, you know, it's a deeply racist country in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. And so I think it's good policy when we look at you know, the long-term effects of Jim Crow. If you want to understand housing discrimination, if you want to understand wealth inequality, if you want to understand differential access to jobs, to educational outcomes, outcomes, uh, a educational experiences and then outcomes, you know, it, it does directly trace back to slavery and then j- the Jim Crow era. And so I think reparations is good policy. It's been done in many other countries to positive effect. 
That said, reparations enters into really ugly contest mm. in U.S. American politics. And so I, the Democrat that comes out and says, uh, once in office, I will institute reparations, runs the real risk of a Trump backlash. Part of Trump's base, not all of Trump's base, but part of Trump's base is white working class individuals who felt left behind, feel like I'm living hard right now. I'm not getting reparations. And you're like, well, your family didn't experience. OK, yeah. Uh, but. So I think I think it's good policy, and I think if the Democrats run on it, uh, I, I'm not happy to say, but I think it's the correct political analysis to say uh, it would be a poison pill. Um, uh, Gerald, uh, Aaron says it's a poison pill if the Democrats try to run on a policy of, of uh, reparations. My take is that that's not the plan, but they want to be up front saying, we are here to talk about racial inequality, and that's our window in. But either way, uh, uh, Aaron has made clear that's a poison pill uh, from I, your standpoint. I agree with Aaron mm -hmm. that it's a poison pill. Uh, the only quibble I might have is it, it, it would be more or less a poison pill depending on who the nominee is. Mm -hmm. In other words, if it is a, a, you know, a far, someone perceived to be a far-left progressive, it's definitely a poison pill. If it's Joe Biden, is there some way Joe Biden can make that? work. That's a possibility, frankly. But mm. I, I just want to point out with regard to reparations, an interesting sort of anomaly. In my mind, the one issue or one of the very few issues that Bernie Sanders isn't demagoguing, mm. right? He, this is the one issue where he sort of stops and sort of tries to be more reflective, which for him is a problem because, of course, the, the one constituency in the party that he has failed to uh, excite is African-Americans. And so it, this is the one issue that Bernie Sanders isn't demagoguing is a sort of an interesting reality. Bernie Sanders is demagoguing on every other issue. He, his responses to other issues are very broad and very conf confrontational. And suddenly he's sort of contemplative about uh, reparations. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's him sort of uh, he, he understands the political calculation on the one hand, but on the other hand, why would he do that in the primary when that's not a political calculation in the primary? Uh, Rob DeLeo, how do you feel? Yeah, so I actually think in some respects the discussion over reparations policy echoes what we've already said about the, the Green New Deal, and that is that these policies reflect some realities that Democrats are ha coming to terms with in this uh, cycle. And I think one of the things they're realizing is they have to be far less transactional when it comes to issues of inclusion. A simple one-off policy promises, it's not going to suffice with a lot of mm -hmm. marginalized communities. They need to uh, center those voices within their platforms. And if that includes talking about reparations, if that includes talking about a Green New Deal to attract some environmental voters, well, that's what it's going to have to be. But the political landscape in that respect is is changing. And I think that that's uh, an important thing to note. I, I think the popularity of Joe Biden in the party today uh, bodes very uh, poorly for reparations as a focus issue. In other words, the, the data tells us that the majority of Democrats are not progressives. And so the, the, an issue that is so, uh, so much about race is going to be a really, really difficult one. The climate change is about science, and that has its own problems. But this is about something that is deeply misunderstood, but yet deeply felt. So I think it's a more dangerous mm -hmm. terrain. I would only uh, make one correction in that statement that's most white Democrats <laughs> are not progressive, perhaps, from because you know right. better no, than I me. No, I meant as a whole, <laughs> yes, the whole group. Yes, yes, When you talk yeah. about a, a population that you want their votes from, if, if, you, if you find out that, you know, 60 percent of them think the party is too liberal, you know, you got to pay attention to that. 
Erin, uh, you want to add? Less well, than? I just reparations moves out of um, policy mm-hmm. nitty gritty nuance wonky you said yeah. earlier to a potent political symbol, and so I think the fact that that, that symbol people load all their garbage <laughs> on, yeah. right? And so uh, that's why I think it's dangerous for Democrats as an electoral outcome. Mm-hmm. But as a democratic policy, in part to Rob's point, it it would do – it would center, to use your language, the party and the groups that are actually getting them elected. That's the kind of policy that people would immediately have opinions on. It's the Mm, same way we throw out like welfare reform. Mm. People have strong opinions. It's Mm. not because they know the nitty gritty on welfare reform. It happened 20 years ago. They don't. It's deeply racialized and it speaks to identity, who belongs, who's getting, who's not getting. And so that's why I think they're important conversations that stir the pot. But the Democratic Party at root, like the Republican Party just wants to win. Mm-hmm. And so I don't see them being particularly bold here because they assume they're going to get African-American voters. Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave that there for the moment. Let's take a break. Coming up, more <laughs> insight and analysis with the Mass Politics Profs as we continue our full hour special on local and national politics. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. It's the second part of our hour-long discussion on the latest in political news. Here to give us their insight and analysis are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Gerald Duquette of Central Connecticut State University. Let's jump right back into the conversation. Um, I want to look at the uh, Boston mayor, I'm saying Boston mayor's race. That's Freudian. (laughs) That is actually Freudian. It's about the city council race. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 2019 city council races that uh, uh, our own uh, WGBH's own analyst David Bernstein predicts is really uh, to be looked at as a filter for perhaps whomever is going to challenge uh, Marty Walsh for the next mayorship. Um, Aaron, what do you think, uh, given that three people have said they're not running and the folks who have thus far said they are running are a real mix? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it, this is one of the I've lived in uh, Boston now for 11 years. And when I look at that city council, it's just stepping back. It's amazing the transition that's happened here. Like it's it's really exciting in so many ways in this crop of candidates that can come from the council and be viable. I mean, you know, look, look where Ayanna Presley is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that, yeah, that it, it's, a, it's a conduit to power for individuals who haven't always been running Boston or don't look mm-hmm. like those who have always been running Boston is incredibly exciting. I was actually a little surprised Zakem, uh, Josh yeah. Zakem backed out because he's just, he has such an upside, especially amongst progressives that he ran against a conservative Democrat, um, uh, uh, Gavin, Bill Galvin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was a little surprised by that. But I, I you know, uh, I largely agree with uh, David Bernstein's analysis that, you know, depending on how Michelle Wu comes out, uh, if she's still, you know, uh, one of the top vote or the top vote getters, 
uh, Marty Walsh has always been weak if he was going to run against a candidate of color. You know, um, when he first ran, if Charlotte Gohler Ritchie came in third, that would have been a very different race. Walsh versus Conley. I know where both those last names come from as an O'Brien. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, if Charlotte Gohler Ritchie had been second, I think it would be a very different race. I'm still a little surprised Tito didn't do better uh, against Marty Walsh, but the difference is uh, uh, Michelle Wu can, has shown herself to be a top vote getter and she has a cadre of the other women. I love mm. how um, Maura Healy, Ayana Presley, uh, Michelle Wu, uh, uh, Anissa George are are backing each other and bringing their political muscle to one another. And we've seen that the candidates, Walsh has won and won effectively, but the candidates he's backing aren't winning. So it suggests more political muscle pulled together amongst the women than Walsh alone. Rob? Well, you know, it's too early to tell how that race is going to shake out. But what's clear is the city council's having uh, somewhat of a renaissance uh, in terms yeah. of its political so. prowess uh, around here. If you look at all the issues it's really taking mm-hmm. the lead on, immigration, climate change, right? They just uh, recently, I think it was, they passed the, the paper bag uh, yeah. uh, 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 ordinance. Um, and I, I really think that what we're finding is in the face of all this negativity and gridlock emanating from Washington, people are really taking a hard look at sub national institutions, cities, state governments, um, and they're seeing them as training grounds for politicians who are capable of making policy change. Uh, Mayor uh, Nutter of Philadelphia once famously uh, remarked that he could never get away with the paralysis that marks Washington. And I think if you look at the Boston City Council and the mayor's office in particular, the, the same holds true. We we look to these local officials to take care of day-to-day operations, fill potholes, get the trains running on time, make sure kids get to school. Um, and I think that we see there an example, a, a shining example of how policy can work. Um, so we'll see how the mayor's race shakes out. But I do think it's going to be much more competitive. And I do think you're going to have more uh, higher quality individuals running for council seats mm. because they realize that that may be a path to Congress, the right. state legislature, the governorship. And I just want to echo, you know, a couple of things that you said that in part, the Boston City Council is set up as a weak system. It's hard for the structurally. Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to have influence. And what uh, Ayanna Presley and Michelle Wu have done is um, use it as an agenda setting um, to say, you know, the the trains, the MBTA should run on time and it should be free. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they're they're. as agenda setters, they're not going there to sit there for 30 years and cash checks, yeah. right? And assume that you're just going to get reelected, reelected. So that even though it, it's hard for them to have influence on a day to day, you know, move the levers, they know that the bully pulpit is there and they're using it incredibly effectively to have a, a more disparate representation of Boston and the council. In credit to Marty Walsh, I mean, he has allowed for that, right. that That's a good level point. of engagement. Engagement in ways that Mayor Menino just didn't, you know, (laughs) he blunted that debate, but he he's been willing to have disagreements with them. He's been willing to engage Mm -hmm. them on important issues that involve them in important issues. So I think that that in some respects, although, 
you know, he's going to be challenged. He has opened up uh, uh, those lines of debate yeah, that's that, a good that point. we didn't have. He has have. the cards. Yeah. He could push back pretty oh, hard. Yeah. He's just advantaged in the setup of the game. Oh, like, sure, absolutely. He starts on the 20-yard line and wants to <laughs> score a touchdown, and they start on, the, you know, uh, uh, much farther away. Right. That's a good point. Uh, could I make a quick point, Callie? Yeah. Uh, something that Rob said was really, I thought, insightful in, in, in the sense that voters are becoming more uh, aware of local officials because of their frustration with with uh, national officials, and interestingly, in Boston and in Massachusetts, which has always been an insider game, uh, it's it's almost as if running for local office has become a route again. In other words. Because the public is now paying attention to that, something that used to be required on the inside game is also now going to be useful as an outside game. In other words, mm. running, working your way up public office is actually coming back to fashion, if you will, because the public is paying attention for whatever reason. Well, I just wanted to pick up from something you just said, Gerald, which, uh, because I was thinking um, – Okay, so Mayo Menino used all of his chips to blunt, but everybody on the council pretty much looked like him mm-hmm. and was so he knew those people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what he would do with this crop. You, they didn't know these people. These these were these are people coming from different places. And I just want to make on a other point: a couple of the of the councilors currently on uh, who are seated, like Lydia Edwards, uh-huh. were elected in communities where nobody looks like her. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, she's exactly. so there's more opportunity for all kinds of mm-hmm. folks to actually rise to victory. And there's more bridging, I guess, across both communities. And that that could possibly mean more uh, idea wise as, as well. Yeah, I agree I, with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Menino had his people in there. Right. And so, you know, it's a it's an experiment we can't run. But it does suggest that uh, if he was still in office, the change would be slower. But I think the change would be coming. Mm-hmm. OK. All right, I'm switching topics, and uh, this is one that uh, got quite a bit of attention here, but it's it's uh, it's raised a lot of, of conversation here in Boston, and that is the tete-a-tete between uh, Governor Charlie Baker and Rachel Rollins, who is the Suffolk County District Attorney. Uh, now, this uh, got stirred because uh, Rachel Rollins put forth her formalized plan, the one that she ran on, to say, if I am in office, there are certain... Uh, misdemeanors, uh, small crimes that I'm going to look at a little bit differently. Um, and this is how. So she put out her plan and expected, uh, as she had on the campaign trail, to have people disagree with her. What she did not expect to get was a formal letter from uh, Governor Baker's um, head of public safety uh, chastising her about the dangerousness of what she was suggesting, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that blew up. First, let's listen to what she said uh, immediately. We should say at the beginning they made up, so we'll talk about that. But here is Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins firing back at the Baker administration earlier this month. Not everyone gets the benefit of the Baker family when they have interacted with the criminal justice system. They don't get to not get arrested, have the state police that reports to them um, handle the investigation, etc. So that grew out of of one of the things that she wants to do is um, uh, move away from over-policing of certain crimes based on people's histories. And you don't just get a free ride. Mm -hmm. That's the way it's been described. That's not true. Um, But um, she was making the point that in some instances, that's not even an issue for Mm -hmm. some folks that have privilege. Um, Who would like to start? (laughs) Uh, Rob. (laughs) I'm happy to. You know, Mm -hmm. Anyone that was surprised that Rachel Rollins would push back on prosecuting certain nonviolent crimes was clearly just not paying 
any attention right. when she was uh-huh. running for office. I mean, that was that was her entire campaign platform was uh, addressing sentencing disparities and reforming the criminal justice system. So that that memorandum uh, caught people off guard or was seen as controversial. It's that that was in the works, right? The with respect to the spat with with Charlie Baker, you know, there's there's blame to go around there. But I, I think that she came out the huge victor in this. You know, she took an issue that for all intents and purposes was a bureaucratic memorandum, something that outside of Suffolk County, very few people would have been aware of. And she managed to make it something that was on the front page of the Boston Globe that was getting tweeted about, that was in Commonwealth Magazine. She elevated the discussion about criminal justice reform to a statewide, uh, to the statewide media uh, agenda. So I think in that respect, um, this was uh, a smashing success for her. Gerald? Uh, my, my question is, what motivated Baker to, to let that letter be sent? What was the, what was he being pressured to do there? That's not, it certainly isn't, part of his style to do that sort of thing, right? To raise that kind of issue. So I, you know, I assume he was being pressured to, to position himself in a sort of law and order way, but it, that is a, a, an unusual decision for him to make. Obviously, I completely agree that it's a political home run for the district attorney without question. She ran on it. Now she's being given the gift of uh, this fracas to, to show that she actually meant what she was saying. So politically for her, hundred percent, uh, but, you know, it could also be useful for Baker just to sort of put up the good fight in a state where his party is is increasingly controlled by uh, very right wing folks. I just want to point out that uh, the Globe uh, reporter uh, made note of the fact that in the past, when he's had a disagreement with the policy, he wrote he had a, a letter sent. So that's not outside of how his methodology of responding. Um, but to I don't know how to address the other part of your your question, which is like, who said you should send the letter? That that I don't I don't I don't I can't answer. What's the political? But, but it's not unusual t- for him to write a letter to say, hey, there are these concerns that I'm raising. Right. And there's a okay, policy sorry. argument for his side, actually. In other words, w- one of the things that came up initially is the the increase in higher charges being used against defendants because they could no, they they knew they would no longer prosecute uh, lower charges. So uh, because the resisting arrest is now not going to be prosecuted, uh, they uh, saw an increase in police officers charging assault on a police officer. And so there's actually a policy you know issue that could uh, be discussed here, but that obviously has been sort of uh, washed over by the political. Well, I think there's a number of policy issues that could be discussed. Um, um, in addition to that, one of them was that she raised in her re- in her response was <clears throat> her predecessor had been doing similar kinds of, but it never got the kind of attention. But you know, it was it, it, it was just sort of that's what he did, but nobody paid attention to it. She was the one that said uh, out front, "This is what I'm going to do." Right. He sort of just did it as part of his work, but didn't make it a part of a formal policy, I guess. Uh, Aaron. You know, I think policy-wise, he thought it was going to be a layup, right? Like, he can shore up, he'll send this memo, show it to the police union. The police union's a little perturbed with him, given, uh, you know, uh, what what happened at Logan with uh, overtime and things like that. And uh, uh, the Republican Party is largely behind, to Gerald's point, um, what he advocated for in that letter. And then, holy smokes. Um, uh, Can we just talk about the quote... 
part of yeah. the the clip you played. Yes. Like she didn't just go there on yeah. policy, uh-huh. yeah, right? True. Like yeah. she went there on um, white privilege, basically, mm-hmm. uh, white privilege and economic privilege, and used that as her lens into her policy. And so all of a sudden, Charlie Baker is treading in water he does not want to be treading in. It is water he has avoided like the plague. Smart. I mean, I think that's smart politics. And so, um, you know, Rachel Rollins proved herself, not that anyone's surprised by this, to be a formidable policy foe and to be a, a formidable foe in terms of optics and her willingness. And a lot of people didn't like what she said, but right. like, but like she went there. Like mm-hmm. I, I went boom in the studio when she said that, uh, mm-hmm. and th- this is why it matters uh, who you elect and what they look like and what their experiences have been, because they change the conversation. It's not that um, you know good Democrats, good Republicans sometimes work together and vote the same. Uh, what we find in the research is when people um, enter office who haven't always been there in terms of demographic categories, they change the conversation. Uh, they bring up things that are uncomfortable or less likely to be brought up. And that's what we saw unfold on the front of the globe. Yeah, I mean, Massachusetts tends to have a lot of polite conversation around these things. And and I think that was startling for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. too, particularly at this level. Um, But in the end, uh, to Rob's original point, I do think a lot of people began to understand what is meant by criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. What do we mean by, uh, from her perspective, over-policing and why I'm trying to do some of these things. And what I don't mean is that people, I'm just going to let them run loose and commit crimes and not, you know, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, it's like saying Democrats are for open borders. You know, it's like, no, there's a much more nuance. And and how it's a Massachusetts issue, right? I mean, so we're a progressive state, but people think, well, we don't have these issues going on here. We're different. And she's highlighting the fact that there's change that needs to happen in our own communities. Right. And that, I think, in that respect, it's an important conversation. Aaron, you raised something that I want to give you a chance to talk about, Uh which is about um, uh, summer internships uh, for (laughs) poli-sci students. And um, I thought this was interesting. I hadn't really thought about this in a long-term way. And the way that we're actually Mm -hmm. talking about uh, this uh, former spat between Rachel Rollins and Governor Bacon, if I didn't make clear, they've talked. They've yes. walked. Mm-hmm. They're they're on the same page, or they're getting there. Uh, so. Good for the, yeah. and a true good yes. for them. Right. But thank you for giving me this forum. Uh-huh. Thank you, thank you, because this is uh, the, this is uh, uh, the, my personal. It's not a rant because it's substantive. Uh, I direct the internship program in political science at UMass Boston, and I am sure my colleagues have similar experiences. You know, UMass is a working class university, uh, majority minority. Uh, those students work thirty ish hours to be there. Mom and dad, or mom or dad, are not not paying for school. And increasingly, to get good jobs, you need an internship. Um, if and, and many internship opportunities, the vast majority are unpaid. So I, I think anyone who's advertising an unpaid internship needs to say, I am for social reproduction. I want to replicate class hierarchy. And I know some listeners are saying, but I work for a nonprofit. I work somewhere and we don't have a lot of money. Then don't have an internship. Don't do it because they're just free labor. My students cannot afford I can't tell you the number of students who come by my office and are like, I really want to do an internship, but I just can't do it. If they could pay my transportation, at least. It's how the rich get richer. And our students internalize it as their fault. Somehow, I I can't do this, and I'm not going to be able to get a job, and I'm not going to be able to have these connections. And so my, my, my vehement, strong belief is if you are advertising an internship and you cannot pay, 
take that advertisement down because all you're doing is either making it so students like mine can't literally I'm not like uh, uh, going overboard here can't eat um, have to get behind on rent you're either doing that or you're me or they're not be going to be able to do it and they don't get those connections. And so it is way better not to give the opportunity to, at all than to give an opportunity to only those that can afford it. It replicates so many of the problems we have. And, you know, to Rob's earlier point, oftentimes we say, oh, that's a problem in D.C. It's a problem right here in Massachusetts. I see it every day and it's so disheartening. I don't know. But it's just so wildly disheartening. The ways in which that they they're already working so hard to be there, and it's so discouraging to see that happen again and again. So my plea, and it doesn't have to be tons of money, three grand over the course of the summer makes such a difference for our students. I'm not yeah. saying you know fifteen thousand. Yeah. I am saying um, let let everybody play to get an internship. You know, I I teach at a business university where I swear. Uh, Many of our students have a paid internship the moment they step on campus freshman year. And what we find in the public policy program is because so many of those internships are unpaid, we have, we're competing against accounting, finance, marketing, other majors where students are going to step mm. into these paid mm -hmm. internships. Mm -hmm. And we have to say to our potential majors, well, come, you'll get a great degree, but we can't even get you a paid internship for the summer. Mm. And that's very discouraging. So... It's kind of ironic that we're in this we're living in this era where we're concerned about young people not voting. We're concerned about a lack of a sort of attraction to public service. And yet here we are as a state uh, not signaling to them that they'll be compensated for their work for a career in public service. What type of message does that send? Uh, to yeah. them. I don't think it's a good one. Well, you explained it well. I totally agree mm -hmm. with my colleagues. I can add a personal note. I have two college kids. Two of my kids are in college, mm -hmm. and both of them have plenty of unpaid internship opportunities, but both of them will return to their fairly well-paid lifeguarding gigs this summer because they need the money for college. Well, I hope people heard you. <laughs> thank you very much for explaining that, and thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. thank you for letting us get that in. I <laughs> yes, really, really, indeed. really appreciate that. Erin O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Rob DeLeo is an assistant professor of public policy at Bentley University. And Gerald Duquette is an associate professor of political science at Central Connecticut State University. All three of them are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. You can find more of their insight and analysis at masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm -hmm.